You're listening to A Stranger Cast at thestranger.com. Hey, it's Wednesday, January 29th, and I'm Eli Sanders, and this is Blabbermouth, the Stranger podcast in which we talk about what's going on this week. Impeachment is still happening, but opening arguments are over, and closing arguments might be right around the corner, unless the Democrats can succeed in calling some witnesses. Meanwhile, it's question time for the senators, and Rich Smith, Katie Herzog, and me talk about what they should be asking. After that... Katie Herzog talks about an uprising at Amazon over the company's attempt to silence its employees on the issue of climate change. And Rich Smith does a little victory dance five days ahead of the Iowa caucuses with Bernie Sanders appearing to be about to win while the establishment is trying to figure out how to stop him. Finally, Jasmine Kaimig and Chase Burns have three movies that you probably haven't heard of but you need to be paying attention to. Pedro Almodovar's Pain and Glory and two animation movies, Klaus and I Lost My Body. They'll explain why you got to see them. But first, Rich Smith and Katie Herzog on impeachment. Good morning, Rich. Good morning, Eli. Good morning, Katie. Good morning, Eli. It's question time. We have passed the phase of impeachment where the house managers and Donald Trump's hired attorneys uh, make their opening arguments. And before we proceed to closing arguments and acquittal, as the Trump team would like, there is an opportunity for questions. Every single one of the 100 U.S. senators gets a chance to ask a question, maybe more than one question. Justice John Roberts reads them aloud, and they either are directed at the House managers or Trump's lawyers, and they've got to answer Mm -hmm. so having watched impeachment either in dribs and drabs and tweets and memes so far or completely you got any questions i mean i if i was a democratic senator i guess i would ask why don't you want to know (laughs) you know of the uh, uh, uh trump's team and trump's team is has implicitly answered that by arguing that this didn't even happen. And, uh, but if it did, but yeah, but if it did, it wouldn't be impeachable. And, um, that'll be, that seems to have pleased, uh, Republican senators who have taken that argument from Dershowitz and run with it, despite the fact that a bunch of constitutional, that the vast majority of constitutional scholars agree that, um, he's wrong. Uh, and so list. yeah, but I but I would just c- continue hammering home on that point because polls show that people want a fair trial, people want to see uh, witnesses, and so I would just though having Roberts read these questions in the first place is a way to to p- tamp down grandstanding. I would try to <laughs> maintain that uh, grandstand a little bit through the questions. The size of the question card, yeah. is like. So also sized to tamp down grandstanding. Really? Like you yeah, you can't really write a very long question. It's I want like a Wendy's comment card yes, or something. <laughs> I, I am hoping that a senator with a sense of humor will tape on like an accordion folded piece of paper <laughs> that Justice Roberts will unfurl and ask a very lengthy, more in line with the Senate question. But we will see. Oh. Among the things that the senators, the Republican senators especially, seem not to want to know, as Rich was saying is what John Bolton has to say. So the big bombshell this week is that John Bolton's book manuscript is kind of leaking out, or at least the contents of it are. And John Bolton says he was in the Oval Office or somewhere with Trump when Trump said 
that this whole thing is a quid pro quo. We spent so many months with them saying there was no quid pro quo. Read the transcript. It was perfect. No quid pro quo. And actually, Donald Trump told Bolton, according to Bolton, that he wanted the investigations into the Bidens in Ukraine uh, to help him in the election, or that's the implicit part of it, and that he wouldn't give them their military aid until he got his investigations, quid pro quo. But the Republicans are saying, why do, why do we even need to hear this? Yeah, they're just going to wait till the book comes out. <laughs> that, is, that is one of their, the talking points that they keep repeating is that this is – they're basically accusing John Bolton of using this trial as a, as a platform to sell his book, um, which I imagine will be effective for people who are already inclined to believe that you know, this is all a, you know, an attempt to railroad Donald Trump. But some of the deep backstory in the book, I mean, I don't put it past John Bolton to use the trial to sell his book, but also he's got a lot of other agendas that he is probably pushing as well, including, I mean, this is, he is an ideological warrior and he just may feel that Trump does not comport with his sense of, you know, his ideology one and his sense of how things should run in the US. He is his own kind of patriot you might question his wisdom but like this is a guy who's gonna fight for what he sees as patriotism and and what he believes in in terms of ideology so i I, my read of bolton anyway is that ranks at least as high or higher it for him uh as selling books does but he submitted this book for pre-publication national security review to the White House back in December. Yeah. At the end of December. So Trump potentially has known what's in this book and Trump's lawyers have known what's in this book for a month. And they've still been out there arguing no quid pro quo and acting like, you know, they don't know what's in the book. And that, I don't know how <laughs> you get out of that becoming clear to the American people if you don't call witnesses and the book comes out and you knew about the book a month before you refused to call witnesses it it just they seem to be i guess in a world where uh logic and timelines matter in a kind of trap where they have to call witnesses well i mean trump is remarkably good at creating his own reality so he just takes a concept or a term or a lie and he just repeats it until it becomes truth i mean we saw this even with the 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 term fake news. Trump has managed to redefine the term fake news, which was an actual phenomenon, into basically any criticism of himself. I mean, it's pathological, but remarkably effective. And he got an assist, as Rich was alluding to, from Alan Dershowitz this Mm -hmm. week. So Dershowitz, who famously has defended O.J. Simpson, Jeffrey Epstein, and more, went into the well of the Senate And, you know, the O.J. Simpson, one of the O.J. Simpson lines, this was, I think, the title of O.J.'s book after he was acquitted or something like that, If I Did It. Yeah. Right? So Dershowitz kind of picks that theme up and he he gets in the well of the Senate and turns, it looked like from the video, to the Republican senators and it's just like, even if Trump did what he's accused of, which is disputed, he says, um, even if he did everything he's accused of, It's not an impeachable offense because presidents have engaged in quid pro quos in foreign policy from the beginning of time or whatever. And it doesn't matter. 
Yeah, he stands alone uh, in that interpretation of the Constitution, I believe is what one constitutional uh, scholar quoted in the Washington Post uh, said. Senators who have been impeached have been impeached for abuses of power. Um, uh, a judge who has been impeached has been impeached for abuses of power. Constitutional scholars point out that going back to the um, British parliamentary codes, which is what the Constitution is based on, impeachment has always been used as a way to check a abuses of power, the, the, the very same reasoning that um, the House Democrats are using to impeach the president. And the simple fact is, is that an impeachable offense is whatever the House says. And the Senate. An, yeah. And the well, an impeachable offense is whatever the House says is an impeachable offense, whether or not the Senate wants to acquit him you know, for that uh, action or not is up to the Senate. But the Constitution says that you know you that some impeachable offenses include high crime treason um uh, bribery high crimes and, and misdemeanors and as pointed out uh, on the show because it was news to me a few months ago high crimes and misdemeanors doesn't necessarily mean like extremely intense crimes it just means crimes committed in a in an office having in a, in a, in a office. high office yeah which includes and has always included since the 1400s abuses of power and also dershowitz kind of narrows the scope a little too much when he says you know well quid pro quo happens all the time so for anyone who's like what the fuck is pro quid pro quo like you've been <laughs> listening for months to all this and you still are not totally sure it's basically I give you this and you give me that. It's yeah. a trade. And uh and and an exchange with a really explicit understanding about the terms of the exchange. Yeah. But this is not just an exchange. This is Trump saying, I will give you the military aid if you give me the investigation. And the you is a foreign government who he is leaning on, you could say bribing, to investigate a US citizen. Yeah. Like that has not been done since the beginning of time that yeah. that's new and it's it's quid pro quo plus and you know sean hannity goes on fox and starts screaming well joe biden did the same thing quid pro quo joe is their uh, eloquent elocution uh but when biden uh threat you know said that you wouldn't uh, ukraine wouldn't get the money unless they fired uh the the corrupt prosecutor that was in line with u.s foreign policy the thing to always point out in trump's case is this is him not giving Ukraine uh, money that they needed to defend themselves against, you know, invading Russians is against U.S. foreign policy. So Trump was acting against the will of Congress, against the will of his own National Security Department, and for his own personal benefit. And that part, I don't know why it's so difficult for people to really think about what – when he gets acquitted, uh, how much more latitude they're going to be giving presidents in the fu in, in, in the future? It's 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 a really scary uh, authoritarian uh, uh, grant to an authoritarian. Katie, you are also looking at another high-profile Trump lawyer with some deep hypocrisy and uh, questionable arguments, and that's Ken Starr. Yeah, Ken Starr is back. That if we need further proof that the '90s are back, it's uh, in, embodied by Ken Starr. So Ken Starr, of course, was the lead investigator of the um, Whitewater investigation and Bill Clinton's impeachment, and he has reemerged um, to defend Donald Trump. And during, I watched his opening statements, which were, for one, incredibly hyperbolic. He uh, at one point he said. Like war, impeachment is hell, um, which I think is a, a sort of a, I'm sure it's very boring sitting there um, without their smartphones having to doodle and uh, drink milk or whatever they're doing there. But 
hell seems a little bit, um, I don't know, a little bit hyperbolic. Anyway, um, so he he talked a lot in his opening statements about how this has become a partisan, uh, totally uh, just a, a partisan show. And, it, and this is not about truth. It's not about reality. It's about just Democrats versus Republicans. And he argued that uh, this will usher in the age of impeachment, which the next Democratic um, you know, president to be elected will also be impeached, which is just incredibly funny considering that he orchestrated the impeachment of Bill Clinton for lying about a fucking blowjob. And orchestra. I mean, I, I'm sorry, I have to channel Dan, who's not here to explode about this, but mm-hmm. I know what Dan would say is this is of a piece of Republicans accusing their opponents of the very uh, things that they have committed either as crimes or engaged in as destructive behaviors. And Ken Starr is the 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 primary example in recent American history of someone who would not let something go that, you know, who went on and on and on to, uh, in a lot of people's view, use impeachment over a relatively, relatively trivial matter and uh, to destroy a president. Right. Right. Well, I mean, I, you know, it didn't destroy Bill Clinton. He, they attempted to destroy him. And and that is my fear of, of uh, what's going to happen with Trump is that this won't destroy him. It will only make him stronger. Right. And now Ken Starr, who, you know, laid out the template is saying, oh, you know, what the Democrats are doing is really opening the door to a new era. He kicked that door right. wide open. And here we are at the one of the logical conclusions of that era. I like the question, speaking of the questions that the senators are now going to be asking mm. for two days, I liked a question that was floated in Politico, which, you know, uh, surveyed some senators and asked them what questions they're going to be asking, suggested some questions. And uh, there's a question from one senator that's just like, how did this happen? Like, how did we get here? Wait, what the fuck is going on? You know, <laughs> just a kind of like big existential like, wait a second. How, how the fuck did this happen? And we don't need to answer that. But I just, uh, even if that was a Republican senator submitting it, I do, you know, when I wake up sometimes at three in the morning, have the same question about all this. Next We are going to talk about the Iowa caucuses, which are only a few days away, and the plot to stop Bernie Sanders. All in all, Rich, over $218 billion of food goes to waste in America every year. It's a scandal. It includes 20 billion pounds of eatable produce. That's what Imperfect Foods is all about changing. Imperfect Foods is the only food delivery service that buys the perfectly nutritious and delicious foods grocery stores won't sell and delivers them to you at a discount so you can save money and help reduce food waste. Imperfect Foods sources directly from farmers committed to quality and delivers delicious, imperfect groceries to you for up to 30% less than grocery stores. They also... As I found out over the last two weeks when I got my Imperfect Food shipments, deliver delicious snacks, which seem hardly imperfect to me. I can't tell why they ended up in the Imperfect Food box, but the serious cheesy puffs with blue cheese and jalapeno, uh, 
I ate the whole bag. Yeah. I'm slightly ashamed to admit it. Yeah. Um, but I'm also grateful. <laughs> <laughs> it's good snacks. Yeah, they had a, like a little chickpea and a little dried bean mix that yeah. uh, with a little, just a little salt on it. That was great. Ate that I, whole bag too. Yeah. I also liked uh, that, you know, they sent me grapefruits and beets. I'm like, what am I going to do with grapefruits and beets? Added a little goat cheese to that. Made up a little vinaigrette with a grapefruit zest and um, some brown sugar and some mustard and some red wine vinegar. Made something called a beet grapefruit salad. Ate that all week. It was amazing. It was so good. It's a lot of food. And it's not that ugly. Like the fruit that they send and the stuff that they send isn't even like, I'm like, I would have, this would have got an eight in my beauty contest of grapefruits. I don't understand. Yeah. I would even go further than not that ugly yeah. and say pretty good looking. Yeah. 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 For something advertised as imperfect. It, it just makes you even more outraged that people are just tossing this stuff away. And, uh, the unrealistic beauty standards perpetuated by a fucking greedy food industry. You need to, Go away, and we should all be eating these imperfect foods. Really, it is standing up to late-stage capitalism and a whole bunch of cultural stuff like beauty standards that are uh, hurting us. And Imperfect Foods gives you, with flexible plans, the opportunity to eat stuff that was going to be thrown away, pick healthy, seasonal produce along with grocery staples, And along with that quirky looking but delicious produce, you can also get surplus coffee, discolored quinoa, off-sized eggs, slightly scarred almonds, and more. Read all about Imperfect Foods in the New York Times, Bloomberg, and Forbes, or ask any of their over 200,000 satisfied customers. I'm one. Rich is one. You can start saving time and saving money and, most importantly, saving waste right now. Because when you go to imperfectfoods.com slash blabbermouth through February 16th, you'll get $10 off your next four orders. That's a total of $40 off. Just go to imperfectfoods.com slash blabbermouth and get $10 off your next four orders. Imperfectfoods.com slash blabbermouth and enter blabbermouth at checkout. So Rich, the Iowa caucuses are just days away. If I count them out on our calendar, it's five days. They're going to happen on Monday, this coming Monday, February 3rd. Mm-hmm. And the polls are showing that Bernie Sanders is about to win the Iowa caucuses. It might be different tomorrow, but today that and yesterday and the day before, that is what Every pollster seems to be suggesting, and there are now a ream of articles about the establishment freaking out, having consternation and worry and being rankled, and how do we stop Bernie is the question. Yeah. I just wanted you to have a little opportunity to explain to the establishment, which you've been trying to reach through this show for many years, why it's not going to work and why they should just accept that Bernie is the Democratic frontrunner. Well, yeah, I mean, I, three, I think out of four recent polls show Bernie with a lead in, in Iowa. I think it's about a couple, a couple percentage points to up to four percentage points. Um, uh, one shows Biden uh, ahead. Uh, the polls in New Hampshire are the insane ones. They show him with you know ten point, eleven point lead over uh, Morin, um, high single digits over over Biden, and and that's pretty wild. Um, 
but not to be unexpected. And I think that if you are a, um, a pundit or a democratic operative or a columnist who uh, didn't see Bernie Sanders or didn't see the potential for Bernie Sanders to win Iowa, despite the fact that he did it in 2016 and despite the fact that he has raised tons of money and despite the fact that he has a very good organ or you know organization on the ground in Iowa and has had for a long time I don't feel particularly compelled to <laughs> to listen to what you have to say um, you know now or in the future nor do I find um, convincing the kind of you know alarm bells ringing but I think that Bernie works in 2020 for the same reason he worked in 2016. A lot of people see the Democratic Party as an anemic organization that doesn't speak to their, you know, working class concerns and uh, who put up uh, politicians who aren't particularly, you know, uh, persuasive. And so they are, you know, they, they back him. All right. I just wanted to give you a moment <laughs> to run with as a critic of mine on Twitter pointed out this week the facts. We were talking about Bernie and Bernie bros last week, and yeah. I was trying to give voice to the Hillary Clinton critique of Bernie bros, and not just Hillary Clinton's critique, and you were laying down the Bernie view, and this uh, person who tweeted at me said, Eli Sanders is really running with this Bernie bros garbage, even as Rich <laughs> Smith is giving him the facts about <laughs> most of Bernie's supporters not being men. It's sexist and racist to label all of Bernie's supporters online as bros and imply they're all white, tweeted by a guy who, from his Twitter bio, appears to be white and male. Got him. Got him. So. Pointing out that hypocrisy. uh, I just want to point something else out since we're talking about data and facts here. There's another really interesting and honestly kind of convoluted poll that asked not only who is your first choice, but who is your second choice. And this was a national poll, so it's not just Iowa, but it matters a lot in Iowa where voters get to you know pick in caucuses. And if your first pick is not in the lead in your caucus, mm-hmm. you get to then go to your second pick and maybe throw your vote in with your second choice who's getting a lot of votes in your particular caucus room. Yeah. Katie, can you guess who the second choice of Democrats is? Of Bernie Sanders supporting Democrats? Of yeah. Well, let's let we can take that. But the you could also say, I think if I read this poll right, the most common second choice for oh Democrats. God, I mean, I guess if if Bernie is the first choice, I guess the, the rational second choice would be Warren. And it is. Okay. So maybe because of that kind of second choice situation. Um, you will see in Iowa a result that doesn't quite track with the polls, but tracks with uh, what we think about, you know, logical second or you could argue first choice uh, being Elizabeth Warren. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the the polls are pretty close <laughs> in Iowa. It, it it seems like Bernie Sanders is is, is going to take it, but Elizabeth Warren has a very good 
ground game, just as good as as, as Bernie Sanders, if not better. She's got a great team in other states. Um, she's uh, taken for, selfies for, for, with everyone in, in Iowa. Every Katie single person. points out, she has taken selfies, although I guess if we're being technical, they're not really selfies. But, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> but there's no reason to... Uh, I she's don't know also, why she re, she's also re- redefining language. Yes. Very Trumpian. <laughs> yeah, you, <laughs> yes. An incredible Trumpian move on Elizabeth Warren's part. They're clearly not selfies. They're portraits with a president, and she gets their data. So uh, doesn't that sound a little bit like a Russia misinformation campaign to me? Anyway, uh, yeah, anything could happen in Iowa, but if you know Bernie Sanders does win Iowa and does win New Hampshire, five thirty-eight. You know, uh, prediction models suggest that you know it's going to give him a big bump going into Super Tuesday, which will be meaningful. And you know, he could go all the way to the Demo- Democratic nomination uh, or to become the Democratic nominee. And but Elizabeth Warren also has a strong uh, ground game and a lot of money, and could, in the way that Democratic operatives were thinking Bernie Sanders was going to be operating. Hold on, get 15% here, get 15% there, get 15% here, and accumulate enough delegates as the race continues to have a pretty strong argument for herself at a brokered convention to say what you just said, which is, hey, I'm everybody's second choice. <laughs> I'm second best. Vote for me. And, you know, or, you know, it could turn around. She could win Iowa in an upset. And so, you know, anything could happen right now. I'm not too fatalistic about it. It's, it's kind of wild. I just want to flag a more realistic to me scenario that a few people in the political writing world are warding about. So I'm not paying as much attention to the like Bernie needs to be stopped. How can we stop him kind of Mm -hmm. line of punditry as I am to this line of punditry, which goes, all right. Yeah. Bernie for all the reasons rich outlines and more is about to win the Iowa caucuses. Mm -hmm. If he wins, he could easily roll up New Hampshire and maybe Nevada, South Carolina, all that comes next. And then we are into Super Tuesday, which is at the beginning of March. Mm -hmm. There's something else going on, like in a totally different orbit of the Democratic primary. And that is Michael Bloomberg, who has completely blown off Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina. He has said very loudly and clearly, he's not even really getting into the race or campaigning in any state that does not involve Super Tuesday in March. So what's being set up here, Rich, and I want to warn you because the establishment, as you say, it, is up to something uh-huh. here. And here's what they're getting up to. If Bernie has knocked out Warren and Klobuchar and uh, Buttigieg and everyone else by Super Tuesday, uh-huh. the debate is going to be, whoa, Bernie? Or wait a minute, how about Bloomberg? And he is going to become the establishment alternative to Bernie, and he's going to walk into Super Tuesday with all his billions and all his advertising. And I I predict, based on other people's predictions, that you will see this massive, massive push if it just comes down to Bernie versus Bloomberg for the Democrats to embrace uh, this plutocrat from New York. Bloomberg cer- certainly hopes so, but you know, I guess the uh, elephant in clear mental decline in the room is Joe Biden, who could also win Iowa pretty handily, um, uh, get a bounce. Uh, anybody on the uh, fence in New Hampshire could go to him and he could uh, cinch up the Democratic nomination pretty easily. And what most pundits have been suggesting is true and what Biden has been hoping is true, that the safest 
quote unquote, uh, pick wins. It's worth also noting that, you know, Biden's, uh, at least ex- externally, his presentation and his message of uh, being a working class champion uh, might also be the thing that's sort of shoring up his uh, seemingly um, uh, you know, impenetrable numbers. All right. Well, we will have an answer on Iowa by the next time we record a show. In the meantime, speaking of what can and can't and should be said on the left or among correct thinking people katie you are uh watching this always and still and this week at amazon there was a big uh well i I would say big or maybe silent almost silent protest over amazon telling its employees a lot of them uh liberal and in seattle that they can't speak publicly about climate change well, they can't speak publicly about Amazon's role in climate change. So, yeah, so um, some Amazon employees have been like, and this is a trend all over the tech tech industry and, and other industries, um, have been speaking out about their employers' role in climate change. So Amazon has done a lot sort of on the, the PR front when it comes to climate change, um, and they've done, a, done some work reducing their own climate impact. Um, that said, they also contract with the oil and gas industry to, you know, extract more fossil fuels from from the planet. Um, and so Amazon employees have been speaking out against this. And they've been instructed by their bosses to shut the fuck up or risk being terminated. Um, and so a group of them sort of came out in numbers. About 350 Amazon employees signed statements um, and, and put out their own statements talking about this. And we'll see what happens. if <laughs> Amazon might be hiring uh, 350 new people today. Do you um, what do you what do you think? Like, have they successfully kind of rafted up together in a number that Amazon can't do anything about? I don't know that this is going to have a massive impact in terms of uh, Amazon's contracts with the oil and gas industry. I'm sure are more valuable than the negative press um, related to this. And I think Amazon, you know, the bottom line for Amazon has always been sort of you know the stock the the share price um, and uh, and sort of customer satisfaction so if you can piss customers if you can make this a customer issue maybe uh, it'll have some impact but um you know i'm not super hopeful that 350 people will uh, be able to stop the amazon machine and people a lot of people don't know this about you but before you became twitter famous and infamous <laughs> you wrote a lot about the environment and climate change and so i just i i wonder um what you make of the steps that amazon has taken they they've really turned around, I don't know if you would say fully turned around, but they have made a turn in the last year or so and gone from doing absolutely nothing as a corporation to saying, we want to be an industry leader and here are a few things we're going to do, but do you think it, what they're doing amounts to anything? Well, they, I mean, if so Amazon came out with the climate pledge uh, last year, but this is what they're calling it, climate pledge, and it's they were the first signatory of this, it's not a program, but it's sort of this promise to um, to adhere to the, the Paris Climate Accords across industry and to and to meet these these carbon neutral goals earlier than earlier than the, the timeline set out by the Paris Climate Accords. I mean, industry is a massive has a massive carbon footprint i mean yeah absolutely amazon can make a difference i mean it's think about amazon amazon is everywhere amazon is in the packages we get i mean it's you know it's it's everything and microsoft has done the same thing microsoft recently committed to um not just going carbon neutral but also 
offsetting all of the carbon that the company has put into the atmosphere since their founding in 1975. So that's, that's massive. But at the same time, Microsoft is also continuing their contracts with the oil and gas industry. Mm-hmm. So if you really wanted to make an impact, I mean, the thing to do would be to stop working with the oil and gas industry. And I can't really see that happening. All right. Next, we are going to talk about three movies that you probably haven't heard much about, but you should definitely be checking out. Rich, as a co-owner of a very small business. Blabbermouth. The Blabbermouth Empire. Yeah. You know that running this thing is no easy task, and sometimes things happen and your cash flow just isn't moving at the speed of your business. That's right. Normally, I blame the Democrats in, in the state house, but normally I blame you. <laughs> but through Blue Vine, you can secure a business line of credit in as fast as five minutes. Blue Vine is an easy, fast way to help support your business growth with a line of credit of up to $250,000. Whether you need money to offset upfront costs, secure inventory, or pay an unexpected expense through Blue Vine, you can help yourself and your business stay secure for any reason. There's no fee to set up your line of credit, and BlueVine never charges maintenance or prepayment fees. Applying is easy. Just go online to BlueVine.com slash Blabbermouth. Fill out a few simple details, and you're done with your application within minutes. Seeing an offer will not affect your credit score, and once approved, funds can be received in as fast as 24 hours. Have peace of mind knowing that funds can be drawn with the click of a button for any business expense. BlueVine has helped more than 20,000 customers and has delivered over $2.5 billion in funds to businesses. BlueVine also has advisors available by phone to answer any questions and help meet your business needs with an A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau and a nearly five-star review on Trustpilot. See why thousands of satisfied business owners have chosen BlueVine as their go-to source for financing. For listeners of the Blabbermouth podcast, BlueVine is offering a special limited-time promotion of a $100 gift card when you take out a loan or open a line of credit with BlueVine. Go to getbluevine.com slash Blabbermouth. For more details, all you have to do is go to getbluevine.com slash Blabbermouth and apply. It's quick, easy, and it's a meaningful way to help your business in as little as 24 hours. This promotional offer is subject to terms and conditions that can be found at getbluevine.com. Jasmine Kaimig, hello. Hi. Chase Burns, hello. Hello. You and I and everyone out there has been ordered to see a movie by Jasmine. The movie is Pain and Glory by Pedro Almodovar. Why are you issuing this order, Jasmine? I Well, I have to come out to both of you as a big Pedro Almodovar fan. Um, I've been watching him since I was like 14 or 15. He made me want to learn Spanish. Uh, he's a Spanish director. He's from Spain. And this this movie is, I think, a really tremendous uh, work by him. Uh, he got really famous after Francisco Franco fell in the 1970s in Spain. And he started creating these kind of really campy, very gay films in a society that had been really lacking those kind of movies. And so his, his career has been he's been around for almost 50 years 
And so this last effort is something a little bit different for him where he is clearly focusing on on himself. Normally he kind of um, crystallizes his experiences through different elements of the story. But in Pain and Glory, Antonio Banderas plays an aging Spanish auteur named Salvador Mayo who looks just like Pedro Motivar. And he is retired. He's retired because he's he's struggled a lot with his mental health and most especially his back pain. And so it's this really interesting film that kind of uh, is about aging, is about pain, kind of about gay loneliness as well. Hmm. Um, he reencounters people from his past, like a past lover, uh, a past actor that he had a huge falling out with, which um, is actually kind of analogous to the relationship between Banderas and Omotivar himself. Antonio Banderas did four films pretty early on in his career with Omotivar, and then they did not work together for like 20 years. Is Antonio Banderas gay? No. no. So just their professional relationship. Yeah, it's a, I mean, I don't, I don't know their life. Right. You know, and right. we can dream whatever we, can we dream, want. We can close our eyes and wish for it. But there's no evidence to show us that he is a gay. Damn. Right. But um, I think, yeah, so it's I'm also bringing it up because last Saturday, um, Spain has their version of the Academy Awards called the Goyas and Pain and Glory basically swept uh, people who were there. So that it was it, the whole ceremony kind of acted as a kind of celebration of a Motivar's work. Uh, he won best actor or sorry, best director. Uh, best film, best original screenplay. Banderas, after five nominations, finally won best lead actor. And everyone was just kind of there giving these platitudes to Pedro. Pedro, me and my friend Pedro. <laughs> <laughs> and it's in, in terms of the Oscars, it's nominated for best interna- international feature film, which it won't win. Parasite will definitely win. Mm. And uh, Antonio Banderas, he gave a great performance. He was actually nominated for best actor at the Oscars and he probably won't win that. Too. Yeah, he's definitely the sort of far out pick there, but it was really exciting to see him picked because that was of all the races, probably one of the most competitive races. Mm-hmm. And you also had Eddie Murphy and Dolomite is my name. There were a lot of cases of people who were shut out of that category. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was great to see him get in there. Yeah. Especially in it with a film in a foreign language. I think often we really overlook performances uh, done in languages other than English uh, so it was really great to see a Spanish language film get in. Yeah, because you look at Parasite and no one in the cast is right. nominated, but the movie could win Best Picture. It's kind of really closely uh, seen as the second pick for Best Picture this year. And Chase, you endorsed Jasmine's commandment here. Have yeah. you seen Pain and Glory? Yeah, I watched it over the weekend uh, on recommendation of John Waters. It was one of his favorite films of the year, which I sort of found interesting. You would think that John Waters has this like deep cult taste, which he does, but he also he has like a real a real Achilles heel for like sappy uh, foreign films. Hmm. But he wrote this really amazing note. Uh, do you have it? Yeah, it's two sentences, and it is somehow. The encapsulation of everything that makes it great. I'll read it. The first Omotovar film movie to shock me. It's not one bit funny or melodramatic, and even the colors are muted. Yet it goes beyond the valley of maturity and over the top of riveting self-reflection to gay mental health. You're not dying, Pedro. Independent cinema is. I thought that was so sweet. The final line, I was like, damn. (laughs) (laughs) It was just, it was true. And it was very much a director that I, I felt was sort of, 
contemplating on why he had fallen out of fashion in some ways in his own life and like his own sort of fascination with his death. And I just love that another director who knows independent cinema so well sort of swept in another gay director and was like, it's not you, it's everyone else. And I just thought that was sweet. And it really is. It's more muted than his other films. But that being said, it's still super bright. It's so mm-hmm. colorful. He and makes really colorful movies. His apartment in the film is based on his real apartment in Madrid. It's and it's nuts. these like beautiful reds and, and uh, giant kind of abstract paintings. And it, it's kooky, but it's it's very curated as well. Hmm. All right. So the movie is Pain and Glory and go out and see it now. Well, actually, you can see it on you can buy it on Amazon. Prime. Oh, yeah. And you can uh, rent it. Yeah. Is it in theaters? No, it's yeah, it's, it might be in some theaters, but it's pretty much left theaters. Yeah. All right. So Amazon Prime or, or iTunes? I I, it's iTunes, iTunes and maybe YouTube. All right. Uh, Jasmine, John Waters and Chase all say you got to do it. So you got to. Chase, you have been looking at two animation movies that are out right now on Netflix. Yeah, so the animation category at the Oscars this year is really interesting. Obviously, there were two juggernauts from uh, Disney that people really thought were was going to sort of sweep the award seasons this year, which was Frozen 2, the highest grossing animated movie of all time, and Toy Story 4, which is great. Uh, at the Oscars, uh, Frozen 2 was shut out, and it was replaced by two animated films that come from Netflix, which is really interesting because Netflix just entered the animation game really seriously. They created their first animated feature called Klaus, which was a Christmas movie that I don't think a lot of people saw. I actually saw it like just a couple days ago. But it won the Annie Awards, which, similar to the Goya Awards, is a really gigantic award, but in this case for animation. And uh, over the weekend, it won Best Animated Film at the Annie Awards. And the last five years, those awards have predicted the Oscar winner um, four out of five times. So there's this weird Christmas movie from Netflix that is actually really delightful, really beautiful, um, that may beat out Toy Story 4 for Best Picture at the Oscars, Mm. which I think is interesting considering we talked a lot last fall about how Disney was entering the streaming game, and you had Disney executives talking about how the move would probably make Disney appear a little bit more like Netflix, but also Netflix appear a little bit more like Disney and competing with them. And so if we see Netflix, which is the only group to have two films in this category win animation i think that's that's a big sign that netflix is being taking animation really seriously and what's so compelling about this christmas movie the thing about this one that is delightful is jason schwartzman is in it to be completely oh, honest I, love him. I found klaus to be uh, a little uh, boring um but i don't have kids and i don't like christmas but it's gorgeous so i think that's why people love it the one i want to highly recommend is the other nominated film which is an adult animated film called i lost my body which is very bizarre and it's about a severed hand that is trying to find its body and it's also like a rom-com and i it's dreamy and it's bloody and in anyways that one's nominated for an oscar how long are these oh they're like an hour and 10 minutes they're very easy and they're both on netflix um what's interesting about both of these is they're getting all this huge acclaim right now but I don't know anyone who's watched them. And Netflix doesn't release their viewership data. And so maybe like 
4,000 people might have watched these movies. And we talked recently about Missing Link, which is by Leica, the Portland animation studio, which won the Golden Globe. And that tanked at the box office. And it won the Golden Globe. And it could also win the Oscar. So what's weird here is we're seeing Disney, this juggernaut, competing the against these three smaller indie animated films that didn't get a huge viewership that might beat them for the biggest the biggest category. And I lost my body, so this bloody mm-hmm. stump of a hand trying yeah. to find its owner. Is there something deeply artful about it? What oh, is- yeah, it's deeply artful. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I mean, the animated styles, it, it, Leica is uh, stop motion. Uh, people really liked Klaus because they were like, oh, it's hand-drawn. It I looked mean, like uh, Anast- Anastasia. It does look a little like Anastasia. It also has strong Emperor's New Groove vibes, um, which is an old <laughs> Disney movie that I like. pretty directly had Emperor's New Groove vibes, which I thought was, again, Netflix sort of taking shots at Disney because that was a Disney film. <laughs> All right. So... Klaus and I Lost My Body on Netflix, Almodovar's Pain and Glory on Amazon Prime, and maybe elsewhere if you can find it. Jasmine, thank you. Thanks. Chase, thank you. Thanks. And that's the show. If you've got something you want to say to Rich Smith, Jasmine Kaimig, Chase Burns, Katie Herzog, or me, call the Blabberphone, 206-302-2063, or dive on into our Blabbermouth Podcast Facebook group, or tweet at me, like the not Bernie bro, Bernie bro did last week. Thanks as always to Ahamefale J. Alua for making the music we use in the show each week and to Nancy Hartunian for bringing our blabbering mouths to your ears. <laughs>